Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful that you are sovereign and you are all-powerful and that Christ, you reign. In the context of what we've been seeing going on over the last 40 hours, it is great to know that you are seated on your throne. You are in control. As I thought about the events in our world coming to work this morning, God, you knew that as much as our human minds and hearts are shocked and hurting, how much more, creator God, your heart must be saddened about how far we have drifted from who you created us to be. Thank you, Jesus, that you are going to return. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life in your presence on the new earth where there will be no more effect of sin. We long for that day. But until then, we take comfort and we take peace and we have strength to know, Jesus, you are the King of kings. Almighty God, you reign and you allow us to have personal relationship with you. That's incredible. I pray that through your word this morning you would refresh in us on this Thanksgiving Sunday with a new sense of awe of the privilege we have to be in relationship with the King of Kings who reigns and is going to return. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before I start, I just want to say thank you to the ladies who put together this beautiful harvest fall theme behind. I say ladies because I'm pretty confident no men put this together. So I don't know who they were, but you do, ladies. Thank you so much. We, we so appreciate the work that you do. It's also great to see some familiar faces of students who have gone away and uh, have survived their first month of college or university away from home. Congratulations. We are proud of you. And uh, let me just give you one thing that I learned. Something happens in your parents' heart of, uh, towards generosity uh, since you've been away. If you've been away from home for four weeks and you've returned for your fall break, ask anything of your parents this week and they are going to give it to you. So ask boldly, with confidence, because what they used to say no to, this week they'll say, of course we have to do that for them, right? So I hope you have a great week at home with your family. Well, last week we looked at the, uh, Luke's exciting historical account of how the Church of Jesus Christ was launched on the day of Pentecost with the arrival of the, the promised gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We saw that Peter preached a Christ-exalting sermon, and through the work of the Spirit and the work of the preaching of God's Word, 3,000 people were saved on that one day. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would hope that you would agree with me that nothing in life compares to the joy and peace of being reconciled to God. Amen? Knowing that your sins are forgiven 
knowing that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, knowing that you have been saved from the wrath of God, knowing that you have been given the gift of eternal life, knowing that you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that compares to that. Not only that, but knowing your identity has changed from an enemy of God to not only a friend of God, but a child of God, an heir of God, and a fellow heir with Christ Jesus. Folks, if you didn't have anything to give thanks to the Lord to this morning, I sure hope you can give thanks to the Lord when you hear all that we have because we've been reconciled to God. Amen? We have so much to be thankful for. And I couldn't agree more with the psalmist in Psalms 95, verse 1 to 7. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. It is good to be in the flock of God. Amen? Well, it's clear right from the very start that the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, that those 3,000 spiritual newborns on the day of Pentecost received by repenting and being baptized in Jesus' name was something that changed them. It transformed how they lived. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, where we're going to be today, Luke reveals what I'm calling the DNA, the deliberate, noticeable actions of those spirit-filled witnesses who received his message, were baptized, and added to their number. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wouldn't that be an exciting church to be a part of? Well, we are. It's the church of Jesus Christ. DNA is the fundamental and distinctive characteristics of someone or something. And in, verse, in these verses, Luke highlights what I'm calling the deliberate, noticeable actions, the DNA of the spirit-filled witnesses who made up the early church, which, by the way, should still identify us today as the church of Jesus Christ. So what were these four deliberate, noticeable actions of these early believers? Well, the first one we read in verse 42 is a devotion to the Word of God. A devotion to the Word of God. It says there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What that literally meant is they were continually devoting themselves to listening and learning God's Word as it came from the apostles. You remember last week, we looked in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
how what the apostles deliver came from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these 3,000 baby Christians demonstrated a steadfast, single-minded focus to the apostles' teaching. They were completely attentive to the Word of God without slacking, without relaxing, without pause or interpretation. Single-minded focus and devotion to the Word of God. Probably the best example I've seen of someone with that type of single-minded focus towards something is my brother-in-law, Adam, Jen's brother, when he was training for the Olympics. And uh, his single-minded focus and his attention to his training allowed him to win gold medal for Canada, which was really exciting. But I remember talking with Adam during those four years leading up to the Olympics when he was in Victoria. His days really never changed. He woke up, he was on the water. He then went and did dry land training. He then, had to, he then had to eat a very specific diet. Then in the afternoon, there was rest. Then back out on the water. There was just this complete devotion, attention to single-mindedness to becoming the best rower that he could become. That type of steadfast, single-minded focus is what these early believers demonstrated. So what did the apostles teach them? The epistles? The series of books in the New Testament that were written originally as letters to the early believers? No. The epistles had not been written yet. Okay, was it the Gospels? No. There were no written biographies of Christ at that time either. So what did they teach these early believers that they were so attentive to? Well, based on what we now see in the Gospels and what we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, where it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what they kept teaching. They taught about the life and ministry of Jesus and the nature of salvation. Their teaching, no doubt, had an aspect of evangelism, sharing the good news that salvation comes by faith in Christ Jesus, but also edification, the building up, encouraging, and strengthening of the believers. This is what they were devoted to. And their deliberate, noticeable action of continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching revealed something about these new believers. What did it reveal about them? They had a hunger for the Word of God. They had a hunger for the Word of God. Spiritual growth occurs when there is a desire, a hunger, a craving for and a delight in God's Word. Psalm chapter 1, the first three verses describe this kind of living, this kind of desiring and craving. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Where is your delight this morning on this Thanksgiving Sunday? And who meditates on his law day and night, single-minded focus. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And then I love the words in Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16. Listen to this. When your words came, I ate them. I pray every one of us every Sunday come hungry to church. And when we hear the word of God, we eat it. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. 
Spiritual growth occurs when there is a hunger, a craving, a desire for, and a delight in God's word. Peter, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, encouraging the believers that he was writing to, explains it like this. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so thereby you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. As Malachi and Laura are going to find out today, the need for milk is a natural instinct for a baby. And its single desire for nourishment will lead to its growth. And just like our physical growth is influenced by eating the right stuff, so spiritual growth is influenced by filling our minds with the goodness of God's word. And once we recognize our need for God's word, that's a huge thing. Do you even recognize, do I even recognize, we need God's word to live, to survive. But how many of us go without missing meals, spiritual meals? We need God's word. And once we realize our need for God's word and we find nourishment in it, our spiritual appetite begins to increase. Trust me, that has been my experience. And guess what happens? We will start to grow. We will start to mature. And so in this spirit-filled congregation, the people didn't abandon God's word now that the spirit had come. In fact, the opposite happened. If you're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, you will be drawn to feed on God's Word. So that might be an indication if you're not totally surrendered to the Lordship of Christ in your life. If you're not experiencing the fullness of the Spirit in your life, an indication of that might be, I really don't desire God's Word. That's a big red flag. That's a big red flag. The proclamation of God's Word by the apostles was the milk of the early church under the direction of the Holy Spirit. As one author said, the example of a hungry nursing baby is a fitting example for us to pursue, even if we have already moved on to stake. Sadly, there is much confusion in our world today about the essential matters of our faith. That is why in a culture where truth is based on personal experience, we must demonstrate this deliberate, noticeable action of the early church and devote ourselves both privately and corporately as a family to the word of God, which is truth. Amen? And what was the impact? What was the impact of them continually devoting themselves to God's word? Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now you read that and go, hold on, Pastor Kevin, I don't see God's word in there anywhere. Let me explain. I agree with John Piper and others that the sense of awe that everyone was filled with at the many signs performed by the apostles was directly tied to the apostles' teaching. We first see this last week in verse 7. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were utterly amazed. There was this awe. Verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. Then in verse 37, in response to Peter's Christ-exalting sermon, they asked, what shall we do? Their question was a direct result of not just the miraculous signs of sound and tongues which accompanied the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but also Peter's Spirit-empowered teaching. And here in verse 43, we see this ongoing sense of awe which filled everyone that was tied to the apostles' ongoing teaching of the word of God and the wonders and signs they performed as the Spirit enabled them. God's word in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit impacts and changes lives. 
That's what we saw last Sunday morning right here. God's word declared and the work of the Holy Spirit together impacts and changes lives. And so I ask us this morning, would others be able to testify that they see you and I continually taking deliberate, noticeable actions that reflect our devotion to the word of God? What would someone write about us? At Calvary Baptist Church, one of our core values is we take the Word of God seriously. Not just the feeding of the Word of God, but the application of that Word through our lives. A devotion to the Word of God. Secondly, a second deliberate noticeable action, DNA of Spirit-filled witnesses is a devotion to a certain kind of fellowship. A certain kind of fellowship. A pastor in describing his church said, we are a Bible-believing church to which someone responded, yes, but are you a Bible-living church? We want to be not only a Bible-believing church, but we want to be a Bible-living church. Amen? And note in verse 42 that a devotion to God's Word and this certain kind of fellowship go hand in hand. Did you see that? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. These go hand in hand. Now, probably many different images come to our mind when we think of fellowship, getting together with family for a meal, going on a golf day with the guys, playing softball in the church league together. There's lots of different things that come to mind when we think of fellowship. And most of the things we would think of are part of fellowship, but in terms of the kind of fellowship these early believers were devoted to, our ideas would seem pretty tame. Let me explain. In fact, the kind of fellowship the early church experienced did not exist before the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Greek word for the kind of fellowship, koinonia, is not even found in the Gospels. This is the first occurrence of it in the New Testament. And the root idea behind it is a commonness, a togetherness. New Testament Greek is called Koine Greek because it was the common Greek of the day, the street language of the people. And every time this word is used in the New Testament hereafter, it communicates an idea of sharing, giving, either sharing something with someone or sharing in something someone is experiencing. And in our text today, the emphasis in the early church was on contributing, on giving, Therefore, the foundation of the certain kind of fellowship in the early church was on giving. And in verse 44 and 45, Luke unpacks that. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who needed. The believers were so united as a family, as brothers and sisters, that if one was in need, the other felt it only right to give up something to meet that person's need. As I read this week, I thought, wow, there was such a culture of spirit-empowered generosity, which prompted the believers to, listen closely, hold their possessions loosely. How tight do you hold what is yours? I know I struggle with that. I've experienced the generosity of people who hold their things very loosely, and I'm often convicted, going, man, I need to become more like that. Fellowship costs something in in the early church, and it came through giving. Now, please don't misunderstand the application of this kind of fellowship. 
The church did not abandon the idea of owning homes or properties, as we'll see in verse 46. They went from house to house. But what developed in them, this is what needs to develop in us, was the spirit-filled mindset that our possessions are not our own. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And as one author correctly said, Luke was giving, remember who is he writing this letter to? Theophilus. I was hoping Laura and Malachi might have that name and their sons, but they didn't. Luke was giving the well-to-do Theophilus an understanding in the way Christians who stand in awe of God handle their possessions. That's what he was showing here. People who have been made alive in Christ should be generous people. And I'm so thankful to testify that over my 15 years of being part of this church family, I see this deliberate, noticeable action in us to the glory of God and to the praise of God. Where did I see it most recently? In the team who went to Tanzania. They needed $60,000. And because you and of God, who's been merciful to you, sacrificially gave that $71,000 came in to help that team. Isn't that incredible? But that's not because we're good. It's because God is good and we recognize that and then we hold loosely what he has entrusted us to bless the mission. You see, this kind of spirit-empowered fellowship was one of Luke's passions. I didn't realize this. That Christians use their possessions for their needs of others and not just for their own comfort. Did you know he was the only gospel writer who tells the story of the Good Samaritan? The parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns. The story of God's great banquet that the people wouldn't come to. Why? Because they had fields and cattle to tend to. The story of the dishonest manager and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. More than any other New Testament writer, Luke stresses the danger of letting our life consist in the things we possess. We need to be careful. Spirit-empowered generosity that helps us to hold our possessions loosely. So how do, we, how do we get this certain kind of fellowship? How do we grow in it? What comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, process of sanctification, and his empowerment to make application of God's word our top priority. We can know how to be generous, but if we aren't generous, we're not really fulfilling the mission. So it's both the work of the Holy Spirit and the help to actually enable us to apply this truth in how we interact with one another. And it will grow in us. It will, as we take noticeable actions to draw close to God. As we experience koinonia with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we will draw closer to each other and begin to fellowship with one another. A beautiful example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. I won't turn to it this morning. But during Paul's third missionary journey, he had collected money for the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And the Macedonian churches had given, even though they were poor, and they had given more than Paul even expected, just like our Tanzania trip. So writing to the Corinthian believers, Paul says, these people first gave themselves to the Lord, fellowship with the Father, and then the will of God to us. To the Lord, and then by God's will, they gave to us. And they begged for the opportunity. These poor believers and master begged for the opportunity to give, to fellowship, to koinonia with the believers in Jerusalem. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it is grace, nothing but grace, 
that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. May we never forget that. Wow. We learned a bit about what that kind of fellowship's like over the past years, didn't we? Three years. This morning, when you look around and you look, you look at who's beside you, you wonder why I'm so passionate to say you need to sign up for the missions dinner. Here's why. May we never forget that by God's grace and his grace alone, we are allowed to live in the community with each other as brothers and sisters. That's a phenomenal thing. And so I ask myself and I ask you, am I a devoted contributor of fostering this kind of fellowship at Calvary Baptist Church? Am I a devoted contributor to this kind of fellowship? at Calvary Baptist Church? Do we as a church think outside observers of our interaction and care for one another would be attracted to the message of the gospel? We need to think about that. And if there's areas that we need to work on, then guess what? He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us become a certain kind of fellowshipping church. So a devotion to God's word, a devotion to a certain kind of fellowship, but thirdly, a third Deliberate, noticeable action of a spirit-filled witness is a devotion to be an active worshiper of God. Did you notice that? Both corporately in the temple courts and as a lifestyle in their homes. An active worship of God, both corporately at 300 Roslyn Road and also as a lifestyle in all our different addresses. The church lived out the shared every day, both in the temple as a large group and in house to house in smaller groups. Togetherness was a precious thing to the believers in the early church. We need to recapture how precious being together is. It is so precious. They loved to be together. They were not content to meet once a week for service as usual. And while they met in their houses, what did they do? They devoted themselves to commemorating the Lord's Supper, which we are going to do together as a family this morning, as part of their ordinary fellowship meals, which they enjoyed together. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Luke's placement of the breaking of bread between these two significant church activities of the apostles' teaching Fellowship and prayer convinces me that he's referring directly here to the Lord's Supper. Then in verse 46, he again appears to make a distinction between the breaking of bread. From house to house, they broke bread, referring to the Lord's Supper, and ate together, sharing meals. The Lord's Supper was enjoyed in the context of a meal. Daily, the believers devoted themselves to remembering Christ and his atoning work. Now, we might not be together in each other's homes every day, but folks, every day, do you and I take time to simply remember and celebrate Christ's atoning work for you and for me? The early church daily reflected on the body and blood of Christ, which provided for them the forgiveness of sins they now enjoyed. Psalms 103, verses 1 to 4 I love what it says. This should be how we wake up every day. Praise the Lord, my soul. 
All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Wow. Do you and I take enough time to reflect daily and thank the Lord for his atoning work? Their Christian faith and community were a day-to-day reality, not a -a once-a-week routine, because the risen Christ was a living reality to them. And his resurrection power was at work in their lives through the Spirit that now indwelt them. And what does that happen? When you, when you are that type of a person, what happens? An active worshiper shares their gladness, sincerity of heart, and praise for God with others. That's what happens. You long to be with others so that you can share this gladness that you have, the sincerity of heart that you have because of the atoning work of Christ in your life, and your praise for God. And how do we know God's presence was evident in their breaking of bread and their fellowship meals together? They were glad. They had sincere hearts which issued praise to God. When someone walked past one of the houses who were fellowshipping like this, they not only heard solemn testimonies and hymns, but I'm sure they also heard a lot of laughter. A lot of laughter. The early church was filled with joy. And many were impacted greatly as they observed the believers' deliberate, noticeable actions. Look what it says in verse 40. 7, 46, it says, they broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and look at the impact and enjoying the favor of all the people. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony that we at Calvary Baptist Church enjoy the favor of all the people who are around our facilities here? And by God's grace, we have enjoyed their favor. We, we invade their space quite a bit with a lot of the events we do. But by God's grace, the early church enjoyed the favor of all the people. Why? Surely it was their Christ-exalting praise and their Christ-like love for one another. Didn't Jesus in John 13, 35 say to his disciples, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, what is it? Love one another. That's why we put that verse in our connections room. We daily want to be reminded What identifies us is we need to be loving one another. And we see this example in the early church. The Christians sacrificially cared for one another and also cared for outsiders. I found this so interesting as I was reading this week. An ancient document describing the compelling nature of Christianity comes from the mid-300s. Emperor Julian angrily tried to stop the spread of Christianity. He said the reason for its growth was due to Christians' charity to the poor. The impious Galileans not only fed their own poor, but ours as well, he complained. (laughs) It's quite a complaint. Welcoming them to their agape, their love, they attracted them as children are attracted to cake. What are those in our community, when they see how we interact with one another, Is it as attracting as putting a piece of chocolate cake in front of a kid? By God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, don't forget, God is making his appeal to those outside through us. Be reconciled to God. 
So should we take this whole idea of being an act of worship seriously? 100% we should, both corporately and in our lifestyle, in our communities. What are some deliberate, noticeable actions that would identify you and I as devoted, active worshipers of God? Is worshiping God a day-to-day, hour-to-hour reality for you, or has it been relegated to a once-a-week routine? Are you taking full advantage? Am I taking full advantage to grow as a disciple by devoting myself to both our corporate worship gatherings as well as our small gatherings in discipling communities? They devoted themselves to the Word of God. They devoted themselves to a certain kind of fellowship. They devoted themselves to be an active worshiper of God. And finally, the last deliberate noticeable action, DNA of a spirit-filled witness, is a devotion to stay dependent on God through prayer. A thankful, healthy, growing church is a praying church. That's just the reality. And I'm thankful this morning we've had to move our pre-service prayer meeting out of the connections room because by God's grace, we are becoming a family that's attractive to the gospel and more people are coming. So we need space in the lobby for people to interact with before services. So the pre-service prayers got moved to my office. But I'm going to have to ask Paul Pepe to turn the air conditioning up because when we packed that many people in that little room, I was sweating right from the start. But that's how it should be. We come to church early because we recognize we are totally dependent on God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. A thankful, healthy, growing church is a praying church. You'll see as we go through Acts, full of illustrations of the church's devotion to prayer. The apostles were seriously devoted to prayer. The church practiced prayer both formal and personal. In personal times of prayer, they prayed in the temple, in homes, as they walked along the road, as they encountered the sick and the afflicted, before they preached sermons, before they heard sermons. I hope all of you next Sunday come going, God, help me to hear what you want me to hear today. Don't just pray for me. Pray that you will hear what God wants you to hear. While they were being persecuted and planned times of intense intercession over a particular situation, they offered thanks to God for their food as they gave thanks to Jesus. For the forgiveness of sins. They praised God in song as they offered up petitions to the Father for their daily needs. They were devoted to prayer. The early church did not have too many earthly resources. But they had heavenly resources. Which they experienced through dependency on God through prayer. I love what John Onwucheka says. Prayer is as necessary to the Christian as breathing is to the human body. Have you thought about prayer that way? But it often doesn't come quite as naturally. That's why we have to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have a single-minded focus, a devotion to these things that naturally don't come. Prayer is to be a continuous stream of calling out to God and listening, both personally and corporately as a church family. When you breathe, you exhale and you inhale. When we pray, we talk to God and we listen to God. And this should be a continuous stream going on in your life throughout your day. Church family, if we desire to be effective spirit-empowered witnesses and see God's mission possible advance in Oshawa and through us, we need to be devoted to prayer. Listen, like our lives depend on it. Deliberate, noticeable action. They prayed like their lives seriously depended on it. Huh, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
our lives, we need to depend on it. We need to be devoted to prayer. We must prioritize breathing both personally and together as a church family. And if we do, through the power of the Holy Spirit, devote ourselves to these four deliberate, noticeable actions, the DNA of spirit-filled witnesses, what will happen? Well, take a look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number monthly, yearly, at the Christmas outreach, fire up the grill, what? Do you think that's still possible? <laughs> We're not sure. But inside our hearts, we really do want to see that, don't we? It's possible. That's why this series is called Mission Possible. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. It's possible. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. What does that tell us? We can't save anybody. We can't save anybody. He alone converts, transforms, regenerates, makes dead people come alive spiritually. But here's the deal. He gives us the privilege of being part of his mission to seek and save the lost. This is what is so exciting and gives me so much hope. In the early church, he used spirit-filled witnesses who were in awe of God's mercy and power. That's where it has to start, church. Are we in awe of what Christ has done for us so that we can be reconciled to God. He used spirit-filled witnesses who were in awe of God's mercy and power and as a result, continually devoted themselves to the word of God and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. They enjoyed the favor of all people. My prayer is that we will be a church with the same DNA. So God will continue to entrust those he is rescuing into our care so that we can enable them to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. What would your DNA reveal? Is there a devotion to God's word? Is there a devotion to a certain kind of fellowship? Is there a devotion to being an active worshiper of God? And is there evidence of a devotion to be dependent on God through prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing love for us. And the reason all this was possible for the early church and it's possible for us today is because you loved us so much you sent your son to die for us so that we can be reconciled to you so that we can experience the indwelling presence of, and power of the Holy Spirit. And so we as a church family this morning, many generations later from our brothers and sisters in that early church in Jerusalem, we gather here today to recommit our loyalty to you, King Jesus, to recommit our loyalty to your word, to a certain kind of fellowship, to be an active worshiper of you, and evidence of that includes being dependent on you through prayer. All that they got to experience, all that drove the early church to be this kind of a people was only made possible because Jesus, you willingly laid down your life, took the wrath of God so that we could have our sins forgiven, be reconciled to God, and now experience the blessings 
of the great salvation that you have provided. And so now as we take time to devote ourselves to remembering, Jesus, what you did for us through your supper, I pray that you will birth in us afresh and you awe for who you are and the family that you have placed us in. In Jesus' name I pray and for his glory. Amen. Church family, we as a leadership team have done our very best to make sure that the DNA, the deliberate noticeable actions of that early church also make up our core values here at Calvary Baptist Church. And you'll see that reflected. We take God's word seriously, not just the intake of it, but the application. We take worship to not just be corporate, but also a lifestyle. We take witness, showing other people Christ is who we are, seriously. We take growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ as an essential. We need to move from drinking milk to eating steak. And finally, we do consider prayer the air we breathe. So I invite you as a follower of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to do not only your part, but to also be a spirit-filled witness. And why should you be excited to do this? Because your sins are forgiven. There's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not face the wrath of God. You have been given the gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our identity has been changed from enemy of God to not just friend of God, but sons and daughters of God, heirs of God, and heirs with Jesus Christ. Amen? Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.